Good evening, guys. Welcome to Hiawatha Church Online. Good to see you all uh, here, and welcome to our church. If you are um, joining us for the first time, maybe, or a friend or family, uh, my name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors at Hiawatha. Uh, thanks for uh, tuning in to our Good Friday service. So happy Good Friday. Hope it's a great start to your Easter weekend uh, and that you're having a great day so far. Um, we are going to look at, I'm going to preach through Mark 15 tonight, uh, verses 33 to 41. So if you have a Bible or a phone app uh, or with a, a Bible app on your phone, turn there if you could. It'd be great to have this in front of you. I think Spencer's going to turn or a post in the, the Facebook feed the uh, passage as well. I'm not going to jump around too much tonight. And so it'll just be mostly that passage. So if you have it in front of you context and just seeing things a second or third time after I read it, it's going to be very helpful. Uh, but we are going to continue our series, uh, which we're calling Approaching Easter in Mark. So we're approaching it uh, kind of on the calendar, so kind of chronologically going through some key passages in Mark. But we are also approaching it symbolically. We, we are showing how all the scriptures are really, and tonight's a little bit different because we're talking about the cross, but we're showing how uh, Jesus had his face set to get to this very moment, that he intended to die. Everything he did, whether, whether it was healing a leper or whether it was talking to the rich young ruler about what he was worshiping and how he was a greater solution or about uh, even riding a donkey into the city. I mean, all these things somehow get us to Good Friday and to Easter. And so uh, that's what we're going to continue to do tonight. We'll finish it on Sunday on Easter morning, our, our fifth and final sermon in, in the series. Uh, but tonight's text is, is a wonderful text. It is a detailed unpacking of what happened to Jesus uh, himself, to inanimate objects, to onlookers, and even to nature itself when Jesus was dying on the cross. Tons of rich theology in this. Most of you, I'm guessing, are Christians watching, but if you're not, this would be a great uh, time for you to understand what is Christianity? What is the gospel? What was Jesus really doing on the cross? And, and I think you'll, you'll be able to see or remember how the, the gospel is unpacked here, but how this is not just history. It's focused theology that makes it impossible to dismiss his death as just a martyr's death or an accident, but one that, that literally shakes the foundations of the earth. We don't see that in Mark's account, but in Matthew, we see there are earthquakes at the moment of Jesus's death, but also more than that, something that, speaking of Jesus's death, rips sinners out of hell and shows the world just how loving God really is. So let's read Mark 15, 33 to 41, and then we'll come back and work our, our way through it. Verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger, and Joses and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. 
All right, so tonight what I want to do is talk about this passage from three angles, from a pain angle, a purpose angle, and an outcome level. And and they'll intermix uh, throughout uh, the Gospels in all of this, but um, for the ease of following along, I want to talk about the pain that Jesus went through and different ways that the Bible helps understand that pain, the purpose of his death and the purpose of the pain, and then the ultimate kind of outcome, which we see some Uh, some instances of grace and conversion at the very end as well, which is really sweet for for sinners like us, for people like us. It's impacted real lives right in the text. And so we'll see that at the end. So let's start with pain. And we have to understand the pain that Jesus went through so that we will understand our sin more, what it cost God to save us. We'll understand how big his love is. And we'll understand what the gospel is. It's kind of saying the same thing, but we'll understand what he saves us from. And so as I go through this list pretty quickly, I mean, each of these could be its own sermon, but kind of quickly commenting on the types of painful things he's going through, think substitution. So think he's dealing with things and bearing things and experiencing things so that we don't have to. He is a, he is a textbook substitute here. And I'll, I'll explain that as we go, but think that when I go through this list. So first we'll start with the most obvious thing, and that is physical torment. It says that Jesus cried out in agony. The word excruciating is actually derived from a Latin word meaning to crucify. It means unbearable pain. Nailed through the wrists and feet into a rough splinter-ridden plank of wood, then lifted up. So he had to use his pierced feet and his hands to lift himself up to get a breath of air because it was impossible to breathe otherwise. But even so, it was a slow six-hour descent into suffocation and cardiac arrest. And this says nothing about the flogging that he endured right before his crucifixion, which was a whipping with leather infused with pieces of bone or uh, metal pieces or ball bearings. And so his back, uh, upwards of 40 times, so his back was literally torn to shreds, so, uh, so much so that some of his internal organs may have been exposed. All right, so physical torment he's experiencing. Then the darkness comes. So it says at the sixth hour, which was noon, so 12 p.m., the sun just went out. And this was not a solar eclipse, but a miraculous snuffing out of the sun by God that lasted for three hours, all the way to 3 p.m., which is the moment Jesus died. And this happened for a couple of reasons, actually more than a couple, uh, but a couple I'm going to focus on tonight. One is to signify that this was the darkest moment of all of history when evil had its hour. Jesus says something like that before he is arrested to his disciples, that evil is is having its hour at, at this moment. Even though he's orchestrating it, Jesus is, and God is orchestrating this, and he wants it to happen so he can save us, evil is having its hour. And so the, the sun goes out to signify that symbolically. Jesus is bearing the sins of the world as well. Okay, so that's the first thing. The second thing is, to suggest that Jesus himself was being snuffed out because he was the true light of the world after all, right? Jesus, the true sunshine, was temporarily losing all of his luster for us. He became dark for us even though he knew no darkness. Then the separation comes. So the first thing was physical torment. The second was the darkness. This is the third is separation from God, separation from his father. So one of his final words on the cross is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is from 
from Psalm 22.1. He's quoting scripture. There are many reasons for that I can't go into tonight for time's sake. But he's crying out with the Psalms, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which, of course, is telling us that Jesus is somehow being forsaken by his father. He's taking on exile from God that you and I have also experienced in our sin, but he's taking that on, the banishment from Eden that we might be brought back in. Remember, think substitution here. He's experiencing exile for exiled ones, banishment for banished ones like us. And I think the bitter wine here that he's that he's drinking before his death helps symbolize this as well. He's taking on the bitter spiritual and emotional pain of being separated from his father as God's son. But this is important as well. We also need to remember that Jesus is fully human here as well. This is a basic, mystical, but important Christian doctrine that Jesus is fully God, but also fully human. He's exactly like us. And so when he cries out in his angst and screams, God, where are you? That echoes our screams to God that also say, God, where are you? You see, Jesus as a human being here is experiencing and bearing the separation sin caused and also the distance we all feel and experience from him. Even as Christians, when we feel that and wonder where he is, Jesus is, as God's son, God himself is taking that on. So it's this terrible moment, but this beautiful moment as well, because we know that as a human being, and even as God now, he can empathize with the banishment. He can empathize with us. Or think about it this way. Not only are sins being atoned for here, but our laments about God's seeming absence in our lives are being taken on for us as well, so that ours would lessen and ultimately fade away entirely. The fourth thing is there's no help for Jesus here. The the bystanders, as you saw in the passage, thought Jesus cried out to Elijah the prophet. So they thought he, he said Elijah or Eli instead of saying Eloi, which is the Aramaic name for God. But those watching said, wait, let's see if Elijah comes to rescue him. And of course, that doesn't happen. That's the key. And so even though they misunderstood Jesus's words, we still see this instance here in the way that Mark chose to wrote this, or God ultimately chose chose to wrote this. It's important to see thematically that no help comes for Jesus. Christ was made helpless for you and me. So we, the truly helpless ones, might be helped. Then the fifth and final thing, of course, is just death. And he breathed his last, it says. This is not insignificant. He experienced hell on that cross, and then he actually died. God's son actually died. He actually took a final breath. The sting of death just sunk its poison into his body and ultimately made his heart lock up and stop beating. All right, now there is a poem at the end of the the Old Testament book, Song of Solomon, that contains the words, love is strong as death. The more we understand the pain and the darkness and the agony that he willingly took on for us, the bigger his love gets and the more we understand what doesn't have to be our fear anymore. Because again, of loving substitution, of bullet taking at the highest level. 
This is what Jesus is like. This is what God is like. He's a bullet taker, a burden carrier, a brunt taker. And this is where the story starts to take a really sweet turn. Uh, when we see that the purpose to his death start to play out. Now, I've been talking about this already, just inserting commentary on, on how substitution is playing out in the pain section. But I want to move on to the way that Mark looks at this when he talks about purpose right after or immediately after his final breath, things start to shake and happen. And, and it means something to us. It means theology. So let's read from verse 38 to start. It says, after he took his final breath, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The, the curtain, if you don't know, was a part of the temple in the Old Testament that separated the holiest place where the Ark of the Covenant was, where God's presence was, most importantly, from the rest of the temple courts and from the rest of the, the city and really from the rest of the world. And so it was this marker of separation between God and humanity. And so the first thing I want you to see is that you notice the immediacy by which this happens. It says Jesus took his final breath and the curtain of the temple was just immediately torn in two right after that. There's no, there's no time separation between it and the way it's written, there's no like linguistic separation. It is like one sentence. Jesus died and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. It's almost like it couldn't wait to be torn. Or better yet, that God couldn't wait to tear it. The reason it happens this way is to show us that there's no other possible cause for the curtain being torn. Nothing else had to happen for the curtain to be torn. Do you hear that? Nothing else had to happen. For the curtain of separation between God and sinners to, to be torn, to be ripped apart, to be, for, for the, the chasm to be fixed, and for the barrier to be opened up. Nothing else had to happen but God's Son bleeding out, but God's Son entering, suffocating, entering into cardiac arrest on that cross and breathing his last. God's Son dying for us. Only his death is the explanation. Only his death is the cause. And so the significance of this is, first, it made a way of access to God, or rather a way, I think this is a better way to think of it, a way for God to burst out of the Holy of Holies, that inner part of the temple behind the curtain, for God to burst out by the Spirit into the hearts of sinners. And this is what we see in the book of Acts, right? What happens right after the resurrection when Jesus is, is with people for those 40 days and ascends, but sends the Spirit. We just preached the book of Acts of Hiawatha. So those of you who, have, who have it on your mind, isn't that what happens? God is bursting out of the curtain. So in one sense, yes, we have access to him. That's true and good. In another sense, God, in this state of immediacy himself, wanting to be with us, now that sin is dealt with, is able to come out and find us and speak to us and save us. In fact, if, if you are a Christian, you are saved because this first happened. I mean, really simply, quite simply, this is it. This is the moment. When Jesus died and this curtain was torn, this is why you and I are saved. Jesus died for our sins because that barrier was breached. If you're not a Christian yet, this is what it means to be saved. Jesus loves you. He died for you. He burst out of that temple to pursue you. And now, even now through my words, he's calling out to you to believe him 
that he loves you so much he was not willing to hold back his one and only son, but to give him up for you, that he might die and you might live. That you might know that he su- Jesus, that you might know Jesus suffered for you in love and that he died so you, you don't have to. So the first implication or, or kind of point of significance is with the curtain is access to God. The second is similar but different. It's important. The difference is important. It contributed, secondly, to temple destruction. It contributed to the first fissure in the inner sanctuary that would portend the full destruction of the building in AD 70 when Rome actually tore the whole building down brick by brick. But more important than that, more than the physical, is this, this is a spiritual reality happening here. The physical temple is being destroyed, but what really is being destroyed is what the temple represented. And that is the old priesthood, which was associated with the Old Testament, which was associated with a testament of works, a covenant of works and law keeping on our, on our part that failed to bear fruit in the hearts of sinners. It failed to truly bring people to God. Hence the curtain. I mean, think about it. By its very design, the Old Testament, because part of the Old Testament said, put a curtain up in the temple and keep people away in their sin from the holiest place. So by its design, the Old Testament kept people and God apart. Though it did look ahead to a day when it would be surpassed by another temple, Jesus himself, who interestingly would be torn as well, his body, but by doing so, he would replace the old building with himself in the old way of being mediated to God by commandment keeping with the new way of being mediated to God simply by the spilt blood of God's son. We must see this. Jesus is not adding to the law here. His death is not in addition to the commandments. He's tearing them down. He's not purifying the old system as if his death would help us to keep the Ten Commandments. He's tearing the whole old system down. So no longer are we mediated by law, but only by Jesus' spilt blood and his final breath, his death. In other words, Mark 15 does not say, and Jesus took his last breath, and then the curtain glistened all the more and was strengthened, and the temple somehow rose up 10 more feet into the air and stood more imposingly and more tall over the people, right? It doesn't say that. Instead, it says the curtain tore. The old system tore. The law ended so that we are saved by grace alone and not by our works. All right, the third section is the outcome section. And really, outcome includes the the tearing of the temple. But when I started by saying Jesus' death affects things like inanimate objects, I meant the temple. It was tearing things. It was doing theology, right? But it also affects nature and people. So I just want to talk about buildings and curtains. I want to talk about right in this passage how we see nature being affected and we see people being impacted, people just like us. So three things quickly. The first is sunlight, right? So the darkness lifted at the third hour, right when he took his last breath. 
It says the darkness lasted until the ninth hour, but then, but then again, which is when Jesus died. So if you think about the progression, we go from darkness to Jesus died, then instant light. And so in the same way, those of us who sit in darkness have seen a great light. That's a, an Old Testament prophecy that Jesus fulfills, mentioned in Matthew 4. We sit in darkness, we've seen a great light. The great light is the crucifixion. It's Jesus on the cross. Jesus' death literally causes the darkness physically to flee, but I think spiritually as well. There's, there's a lesson here, a symbol. He causes the darkness of our sins to run because he, he dealt with them on the cross. He, he erased them. He destroyed them. He bore them. He, he absorbed them on the cross. And so think about that. Just the implication of that alone for, your, for, for our lives is unbelievably rich. It means darkness... And I mean darkness in here, or darkness that's been done to us, or darkness that we've exerted, or thought, or spoken, horrific things we've done. Darkness, is this is saying, is running because the light of Jesus' death has shown up. And if you think about just the lesson, too, of, of physical sunrises, or in this case, like, um, the sun is already up, but it was snuffed out somehow, when it came back out, and how how much God had to be the author of that, right? And the, the one who, who made it happen, the miracle worker. Here's another way to mention the gospel. You and I have as much control over darkness leaving our hearts as we do the sun rising, which is to say we have no control over that whatsoever. Isn't that amazing news? Humbling, maybe, but also the best news you'll ever hear because it means you can't, you not only don't, but you can't save yourselves. Jesus makes the sun rise, he makes the darkness flee, and he makes sin just run out of our lives. And he disarms the enemy in the process because there's nothing left for him to accuse us with because it's as if we've never sinned when we believe in him. So that's the first thing, sunlight. The second thing is conversion. And I love when people are, are mentioned here, actual people like us. And so the first person we see is the centurion. So though maybe not fully converting yet, it's not a small thing that a non-Jewish uh, Gentile centurion is so caught up with what was happening in all these circumstances surrounding his death that he professes him to be the son of God. What I like about this symbolically is that you have the first instance of Jesus's death leading to faith and declaring Jesus king. This is not a good person. He actually assisted in the crucifixion of the son of God. And yet you have a heart change instantly. And this is what, what happens here, I think, with the centurion. This is what will begin to happen for all people, from all nations, for all of history, pretty much immediately after this. It's almost like we're all there with the centurion. And Jesus' death caused us to believe, it moved in us to repent, to turn away from our old lives and to believe and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. That, that he wasn't just a man, but God's son who was working for our salvation. And then moving on from that, we have mention of the women at the end of the passage. And I, I love this, this significant verse as well. It seems like kind of a passing thing, but it's not. Uh, you see, at the very end, you see several women, uh, quote, watching from a distance. Again, like the centurion, we are these women. 
We need to understand this. This is what I mean by saying we are these women. We need to understand we are not close to God in our sin. We are distanced from God due to our iniquity or our sin. We are, and not only that, we are also distanced from the solution. We're not close to being able to save ourselves. In this case, you see that where the women are distanced from the apex of salvation. They're distanced from Jesus's cross. So none of us can take credit for saving ourselves. No one, the Bible says, has done good. No one is good. Haven't we been seeing this in Mark up to this point? We are not close to God. We are distanced from him, nor are we close to the solution to saving us, as I said before. But here's what we can do. We can watch it from afar. And because of Jesus' death, we can begin to draw near. One of the greatest gospel verses, I think, in the whole New Testament is Ephesians 2.13, which says, Those of you who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. Let me read that one more time. Those of you who are far off have been brought near. How? By the blood of Jesus Christ. By Good Friday. That's how we've been brought near. Notice, we haven't drawn near. We've been brought. It's the passive voice, right? We've been brought. Christ has carried us back to himself. He's gone out of the Holy of Holies and by the Spirit. He's carried weak and wounded, even dead sinners, pulled us up out of the tomb, made us alive, breathed life into us spiritually, brought us into his home, called us sons and daughters. But the key is these women narratively show show this. That's who we were. And because of Christ, we've been brought, we've been brought near. So the centurion was spiritually distant and brought near. The woman, these women with real names who really lived, just like you and I, were distant and brought near. The world, which was kept out of the holiest part of the temple, has been given access. You see, and so the gospel in this is, no one is too far. You are not too far from God for for him to get you. There's a verse in Acts 5, I think, that talks about that, how um, it might be 17, actually. But it talks about how God is not far from us. He's drawn near. And he's speaking in general terms, the Athenians, I think, in chapter 17. But the idea is, because of Christ, he's come close. And none of us are too evil. None of us are too sick for the blood of Jesus to atone. Like, he, it is that powerful. It is that darkness absorbing. It is that exile ending. It is that taking on of hell. So hell is not on the table for us anymore. No one's too far. No one's too distanced. No one's too sick. All because Jesus in love willingly wrapped hell around his neck for those six hours, suffering unimaginable pain for you and me. Being infected with the virus of our sins. And so the gospel then is, and you see this right after this, you see the call when Jesus pursues people, when he's resurrected, and also in the book of Acts, the call is to believe in him. And in the word believe does not just mean intellectual assent. It means trust. When you see believe in the Bible, it means uh, have faith or believe or cling to as the only solution. That's what it means to be a Christian. To believe we aren't good. 
We don't have the solution inside of us. The laws of God have exposed how incapable we are of being righteous and of being God-seekers and of being favorable to him just in terms of who we are. But God, knowing that the old system would fail, the old system of do this and then you will live, that's Old Testament, that that was being ripped, that the death of Christ put a fissure in that. It's ending. It's bringing it to an end. But then because of that, a new system, a new testament comes forth, only built on Jesus' blood, only built on what God was willing to do for us in giving up his own son, what Jesus was willing to do for us in experiencing this hell on this cross for you and me. That's how big our sin is. That's how much God is willing to spend. And that's how much bigger the love of God even is in all of that. The love of God dwarfs death. It, even as big as our sin is, it dwarfs sin because it's stronger than it. Let me pray for us and we'll move into communion. God, thank you so much for this passage. Thank you for the gospel in it. Father, help us to worship and to be thankful this Easter. Even though we're separated, God, um, the, the gospel in Good Friday, the gospel in Easter, it, it is running around the world right now. And we pray for more people to believe this and to repent and believe and trust, to forsake even their good works, because it's not by our good works that we're saved, but by the good works of Jesus alone. Uh, and we're seeing this here. This is the ultimate work of Christ. This is when he's working to recreate the universe is right here. He's working again to remake everything that's fallen away, to right all wrongs. Well, thank you, Jesus, for doing that. Thank you for suffering unimaginable pain, excruciating pain, unbearable pain for us. Thank you for dying. Thank you for the darkness, for absorbing that. Thank you for pursuing us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.